0: It really is so nice to see everybody. I just love coming here. Tuesday is the International Day of Peace. How many of you know about the International Day of Peace? Cool, all right, I love it. And it provides an opportunity for individuals, organizations and nations to create practical acts of peace on a shared date. It was established by the United Nations in 1981 by resolution. And since its inception in 1982, Peace Day has grown to include millions of people in all parts of the world. I just wanted to read a little bit off of the United Nations website about Peace Day, just so you could get a sense of how serious it is. Peace Days should be devoted to commemorating and strengthening the ideals of peace, both within and among all nations and all peoples. This day will serve as a reminder to all peoples that our organization, with all its limitations, that is such a Buddhist statement, isn't it? With all its limitations, is a living instrument in the service of peace, and should serve all of us here within the organization as a constantly pealing bell, reminding us that our commitment, above all interests or differences of any kind, is to peace. So if anybody had any uh, doubt about what the United Nations feels is their ultimate commitment, that pretty much says it. It is peace. Interestingly, International Day of Peace is also a day of ceasefire. How many of you knew this? Personal or political? That is off of the United Nations website. Personal or political? I love that. Tuesday. By acknowledging a unified day without violence, a global ceasefire can provide hope for citizens who must endure war and conflict. It proves that worldwide peace is possible. A cessation, they actually use the word cessation. I I just love this thing. I was like, my gosh, this is Buddhism, and this this is from their website, this paragraph. A cessation of hostilities for 24 hours can also enable relief workers to reach civilians in need with food, water, and medical supplies. Okay, just contemplate this for a moment. This is a day that's been going on since 1982. I don't even have any idea if our government actually ceases hostilities on the International Day of Peace. I really don't know. I I assume somebody does this, because otherwise it would have fallen away into nothingness Uh, But what an incredible experience to have a day where any war that is actually going on on this planet stops so that civilians can actually have humanitarian aid delivered without any issue. Pretty amazing. So, why am I bringing this up? Well, what I thought I would do tonight is I thought that I would offer some suggestions for cultivating peace in and around us. Because after all, even the UN said within (laughs) and without, (laughs) which I just loved. So I wanted to start by reading a quote from the Buddha, which I believe, It's a wonderful way to think of how peace could possibly be created. The thought manifests as word. The word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens the character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings." So that is the the root of what we're going to be looking at tonight. And I thought that what I would do, actually, is look at it in a very interesting way. There's this idea of offering and it's an extension of what we think of as dana generosity and renunciation um, but you know uh, most of the cultures in india and a lot of the, these other cultures they actually already had these rituals called puja where they basically would offer incense and flowers to either deceased relatives or sometimes the religions that had deities it would be offered to deities so there is a way of thinking about offering. And when we think about a day of peace, I mean, it's a lot of offering we're going to be doing, basically. So there's this structure for offering, which is the outer offering, the inner offering, and the secret offering. So I'm basically going to talk about peace in three ways. Outer peace, inner peace, and secret peace. Let's talk about outer peace. These are personal acts of peace that we can do toward everyone who is outside of us, essentially. Or at least appears outside of us in the dualistic framework. So the first thing we have to do is embrace our own humanness. If we can't embrace our own humanness, it's really impossible to make peace with anyone outside of us we have to accept that we are imperfect and fallible beings. Our own messiness is what we need to embrace and the messiness of everyone around us. So that's the first thing to do. The second thing is the compassionate recognition of suffering. So this doesn't mean that we want to fix anything. We're not anywhere near fixing anything. It doesn't mean we want to change anything. We're nowhere near changing anything either. Where we are is human life is full of suffering. And people do all kinds of things because they suffer from the three basic sufferings greed, hatred, and delusion. So in other words, wanting, craving, aversion, and hatred. And then, of course, the thing that gives rise to all of that, which is our own delusion about the nature of reality. We think it's permanent, solid, and unchanging. And in fact, there is nothing about this that is that. And therefore, we get caught in our clinging. And we all suffer from this. Therefore, if we open our minds and our hearts to the fact that we are all beings who suffer and we all do things we wish we hadn't done because of our suffering, either suffering in the heart, suffering in the mind, suffering in the body, whatever suffering it might be, we are all equally capable of acting on our basic suffering. So we compassionately recognize that we are beings that suffer. Once we can embrace our humanness and we can compassionately recognize that suffering exists, then we might be able to actually really listen to alternative viewpoints, which is a necessity when it comes to making peace. We have to be able to hear the needs and wants of others and open ourselves to the hearing of it, to be present in the hearing of it. It doesn't mean that we have to agree or accept what they're saying is true, It does mean, though, that they deserve our ears. They deserve to be heard. Of course, the other point of view is also true. We deserve to be heard. And sometimes we're lucky enough to have someone on the other side who is willing to do this with us. So there's mutual deep listening, but sometimes, That isn't the case. Sometimes we have to make this commitment to deep listening, no matter what's on the other side, and care for ourselves deeply should any kind of suffering arise based on what's happening outside. Once we've listened, recognized compassionately that there's suffering, and embraced our mutual humanness, That basically leads to renouncing separateness and embracing sameness. You really can't go anywhere else. You may, in fact, find yourself in a situation like I can pretty much say I find myself quite a bit these days, feeling as though you may be in the company of people who have thoughts and beliefs that are very different than yours that you can't possibly acquiesce to. You, you might not even be able to agree to it. And yet, when I find myself in that situation, what I do is I allow my awareness to get very wide. I let my perception open up, and I see that there is a human being with the same human body I have, the same cells I have, breathes the same air I do, and I recognize that essentially, we are the same. So I can find some common ground in that. And I don't have to feel so separate. And I ask myself, what does this person want right now? And the answer is always the same thing. This person wants to be happy. What do I want? I want to be happy. So then, I say to myself, If we both want to be happy, what can I do now? Because often you're in situations where both parties can't necessarily get what they want, right? So then I remember what the Buddha said. Care, not carelessness, is the way. Care, not carelessness, is the way. Which means then we have to decide what is caring. And often, that takes quite a bit of wisdom. And that is the wisdom of non-separateness. To be able to lift oneself out of one's own point of view, long enough to recognize that underlying any conflict is a basic human desire for happiness. That leads to the letting go and letting be by cultivating generosity and kindness. And this is where it gets a little difficult because now we're moving into the bodhisattvic realm. Now what we're doing is we're essentially embracing our role as a bodhisattva as a being who is committed to awakening for the awakening of all other beings. And often that awakening entails going the extra mile to be generous and kind with someone else's suffering and with our own suffering. I mean, that can look like a whole lot of things, but essentially this is the basic tool for conflict resolution. And conflict resolution has at its core empathy. Putting oneself in the shoes of another. You may still not agree. When you put yourself in the shoes of another, yet you've had the chance to feel in some way what it's like to be them. And that may in fact allow you to be a bit more generous with your own clinging about how it has to be your way or how this is right or whatever, whatever the conflict might be. There can be a kind of opening and a sort of loosening, a shaking free of, I think I've said this before in here, the self-righteousness of anger. And it's sweet, that self-righteousness of anger is a poison that is so sweet, and we get so attached to it. And when I say anger, I'm using the Buddhist term of anger, which is all aversion, basically. It it widens itself to include anything (laughs) that might be distasteful to us, that we are essentially renouncing it through our own negativity. We're not renouncing it through our own generosity. It's a little different. So renouncing through negativity is not renunciation. It's just not. That's essentially just rejection. So generosity and kindness really are the tools for conflict resolution. So just let yourself take a moment just think of something, some situation you might have either with a person or an organization or even the larger political mess we find ourselves in, or even with the world or even with your body or or it could be anything, anything that you're having conflict with. Just take a moment and think of something ostensibly outside of yourself, that you'd like to have a little more peace with. And not just peace in yourself, but maybe a peace that's got a little mutuality to it. You know, that thing might be able to rest a little easier, too, which is that generosity and kindness. And just imagine what it would be like to embrace the humanness in the difficulty and recognize with compassion that there's suffering occurring and really wanting to free both of you, all of you, everyone from suffering. And then listening to what's really going on over there and renouncing separateness, embracing sameness, letting go and letting be by cultivating generosity and kindness and then letting these principles be the tools you use to engage in conflict resolution. Okay, so let's move on to inner peace or inner healing. You know, in some ways, (coughs) this is even harder than with the external stuff, right? (laughs) For a lot of people, this is much more challenging. The idea of embracing our own humanness and imperfection outside of anything else, for some people that is extremely challenging. The whole idea of just opening up and holding with a kind of generous sense of compassion that they are imperfect. For some people, this is extremely challenging. And partly, it's because the slightest hint of imperfection, the slightest acceptance of such a thing makes the whole thing bad, or, which of course is extreme, or the slightest hint of imperfection is the proof of what the mind has been telling the person all along, that they are just totally bad. It's, it's one of the two things, and they're both extremes. And so I think for some people, this, this whole idea of just opening up with a kindness and a loving heart toward our basic humanness, it's, it can be very difficult. And it requires deep listening to our own inner conflicts. So, I don't know how many of you have a committee on the inside. <laughs> and how many of you have a Monday morning meeting that is really hard? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we have all these parts of ourselves, and they all have agendas, and they all want things, and often they don't all want the same thing. Or even if they all want the same thing, they all have different ways of going and getting it. And sometimes those ways don't really mesh. They're, they're, not, they're not the same. Some of the personalities are louder than others. Some of them are more difficult than others. And often it's really frightening to actually turn your awareness in and just let your awareness rest in that narrative that is going inside your head 24/7 while you're awake. It's frightening. I mean, it, imagine if you had somebody outside of you pointing their finger at you during every minute of your waking hours, saying all the things that part of you says to you about yourself. It, it would be. You would just think they were the worst, worst person you had ever met. You wouldn't want to be around them. And that's basically what happens to us. This is the source of this self-loathing that leads people to states of mind that are so distressful. So internal healing looks like embracing the narration, embracing the narrator the concept. Basically opening the heart in a completely loving way to this aspect of ourselves that is often very self-loathing, self-judging, self-doubting, self-blaming. Opening our heart to it with so much care and so much love. That it has no choice but to just melt in the presence of this kind of open-hearted love. It, it actually goes way beyond. This aspect of it goes way beyond conflict resolution. This is just pure, loving presence with something that is often so destructive inside of ourselves. And it works. It really works. And the cessation of hostility in this case is essentially the cessation of our own aversion to this inner narrative that's so negative all the time and so destructive. It's literally opening your arms wide and embracing completely. So that leads to the letting go and letting be of cultivating generosity and kindness toward our own inner slave driver and our own inner critic. Which means we have to let ourselves rest. A day of resting. You could still go and do all of your activities. You could still go to work. Why? stress yourself out through the whole thing with all the narrative about how you could be doing it better, how you have a thousand things to do, how it's not all going to get done. Why not just wake up on that day and just let yourself do? Just go through your activities. Experience your experience. Be generous and be kind. When you're tired, take a break. If you're lazy and your body says, gotta get up, gotta do something, go get up, do something. Don't waste your time with, no. Just listen (coughs) to exactly what the body, the mind and the heart are saying to do and do it on that day. It's simple and it's so hard. It's just so hard, but it's just one day. Actually, in order to go through a day like that, it means we have to make peace with the aspects of our lives that are not easy. This means we have to stop fighting the things we don't like doing, the people we don't like being around. We have to stop fighting, even for one day, the fact of it, the actuality of it. It is what it is. The idea is we really need to open up and accept the whole package of our lives just as it is. So one day, September 21st, maybe that's the day you'll open your heart and love your life just as it is. And one of the great ways to do this is to recognize impermanence. And even though we're only an in inner piece, we're not at the secret piece, which has a lot to do with the more esoteric stuff, you could do it here at this level. When you're in an experience that is not very pleasant, it's going to end. Nothing is permanent. Nothing lasts forever. So just let yourself remember that and recognize, this isn't very pleasant right now and I know that it isn't going to last. A moment's going to come on this day when this will not be my experience. Something else will be here. And that could be enough to allow the awareness to let go of the clinging around, I need this to stop, I need this to be different, and just rest. Oh, this is it, this is what's here. That actually creates the spaciousness for skillful action. So don't mistake any of this for the idea that you should just be a little blob on that day. And you can't make change happen, and you can't have an impact, and you can't have an effect. Of course you can. Absolutely. It's the motivation and the intention. And the whole reason why you're doing something. Because, in fact, there are times in our lives when we have the ability to make change happen, and we should. We should grab it with gusto and do it. And not Hang out in the narrative of doubt. Oh, I don't know, should I do it? Is it the right thing? Is it this? Is it that? No, just do it. If you can make a difference, do it. Just ask yourself before you do it, is this going to bring harm to anyone, even myself? If the answer is no, go for it. If the answer is yes, then it means maybe you need to spend a little more time possibly contemplating what might be a better solution that wouldn't include harming. And that leads, of course, to internal conflict resolution, Mm -hmm. this resting, this being with the spaciousness, the ability to open up and know, yes, I can do something. No, nothing can be done and this too shall pass and I can just rest in this experience and let myself have the inner peace that's going to allow me to be skillfully in this situation. Just contemplate it. One day where you stop fighting and you stop resisting and you just let yourself be in your life. You know, when I wrote this talk, I thought to myself, you know, I really should start with the third part first, because the first two parts really can't be done without the third part. (laughs) But then I thought, no, you know, if I did that, you would all think you'd have to be enlightened before you could get through September 21st. (laughs) And I really don't want you to think that you have to be enlightened in order to get through any of what we've already talked about, because The intention to do any one of these things is enough to make change occur. It's enough. In any way that you can make it happen. So this big end point of the enlightened mind is not something I am suggesting we need to have in order to have cessation of hostilities externally and internally. On the other hand, I am about to go into the secret piece which is awakening to our true, unbounded nature. Because how can I not, right? It's important to go here. And in order to do this, we actually have to do the two wings of enlightenment. Is there anyone in the room that hasn't heard this Zen adage about the two wings of enlightenment? Okay. (laughs) it goes like this. In order for the bird of enlightenment to fly, it needs two wings the wing of compassion and the wing of wisdom. One of the wings, sorry, you're not going to get enlightened. (laughs) There is no enlightenment. You need both, compassion and wisdom. So the secret piece, I'm separating into these two wings, okay? So the first wing is compassion and loving-kindness which the Buddha called the measureless liberation of mind. The measureless liberation of mind. You know, he didn't say that about anything else. Only about the Brahma-viharas did he say that they were measureless, which means that they're infinite. They, They are absolutely beyond measure, which pretty much should tell you that I think the Buddha had in his mind that love is truly the only thing that exists. That's it. Love is it. So there are many passages said by many different Buddhist teachers after the Buddha throughout the Samyutta Nikaya, the Majjhima Nikaya. This is a quote that is repeated by everybody. And of course, it's repeated in that obsessive compulsive way where they you know, go through every single one of the Brahma Viharas. So I've (coughs) condensed it so that we don't have to be obsessive and compulsive about it. Dwelling pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity. Okay. so he said, dwelling pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity. Now, notice the first word is dwelling. When, when I say dwelling, what do, you, what do you think of? Dwelling. Resting. Living. Resting. What else? Living. Being at, at home. Living. Living. Being at home. Anything else? Something else? Yeah? Resting. Abiding. Abiding. Yes. Yes. Dwelling. You're not trying, you're there. You're being, you're dwelling, you're in it, you're resting. That's the first word that the Buddha uses in this sentence. Resting, pervading the entire world. That is profound, pervading the entire world with a mind. What he's essentially saying is what I said early on, which is renouncing separation your mind is resting in loving kindness and compassion, and just that resting in compassion, with a compassionate mind, you're pervading the entire world. There is no separation between your mind, any person, anything you come in contact with. If you are dwelling in loving kindness and compassion, you're pervading them absolutely and completely with loving kindness and compassion. And let's not forget you, it is your mind after all, right? So there you are. Your entire being is just pervasive with this loving kindness and compassion. And he adds sympathetic joy for a reason. For those of you who don't know what sympathetic joy is, because it's not as uh, immediately accessible as loving kindness and compassion. It's basically cultivating happiness for the happiness of others. You're essentially forgetting about your own happiness for a minute and you're thinking, you know, you're just bringing to mind all the great things that are happening for other people and you are allowing yourself to just totally give over and be happy for them. And, of course, equanimity, which is the result of the first three. So loving kindness is that wish for happiness, for itself and others. Compassion is the recognition that we suffer. And we're not always happy. But even in a moment of suffering, we can still have the happiness of an equanimous mind. That is, that is compassion. That is compassion right there. And then he goes on to say, once you are resting with this mind imbued with the four Brahma-viharas, get this. It's a mind that is vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility, without ill will. Okay, so you've, you've just gotten the shortcut. This is the cliff notes to doing everything I suggested before. All you need to do on September the 21st is rest with a heart full of loving kindness and compassion and joy for the happiness of others and a mind that is just resting and equanimous. And basically, hostility is not gonna arise. Ill will will not arise. And when you're met with hostility and ill will, it will dissolve on contact because it will be meeting a pervasive mind that pervades everything. So this is the shortcut, <laughs> which is why I started with it first. I love this quote. This is sort of a quote. Um, it's, it's taken from um, a retreat that John Donne did a couple of months ago. I don't know if any of you know him. He's probably one of our most eminent Buddhist philosophers. Um, His specialty is Tibetan Buddhism, but he is renowned as a Buddhist theologian. And he's actually not that old. He's only in his 40s, and he's just brilliant. Um, And he said this great thing. He said, compassion creates a nirvanic story unlike karmic habits, which create a samsaric story. And that is very profound because it is the karmic habits. It's the habits of mind that get in the way of the mind being pervasive with loving kindness and compassion. I mean, essentially, that's what gets in the way of all of our good intentions. And then, you know, there's a barking dog and We're trying to meditate and it won't stop, and there we are, you know, having visions of a gun and shooting the dog. (laughs) You know, it's like, where did my loving kindness and compassion go? Even during my practice, where did it go? It goes to because of these karmic mental habits that we have that are rigid and tell us in order for us to be meditating appropriately, we have to have quiet why? We don't need quiet. Phenomena is phenomena. You know? It'll come and go. Rest in it. Sound is sound. Use the dog. It's a sound. The dog is your teacher at that point. The dog is the one who is going to awaken you in that moment. Great. Bark away. Yeah? I also wanted to mention that the Brahmaviharas are very powerful antidotes to self-focus. And many of you may have experienced this. Excessive self-focus is a road directly to depression and anxiety. That's where they end up, excessive self-focus. The reason that compassion, loving kindness, altruistic joy, and equanimity are the antidotes to self-focus, to depression and anxiety, is because they awaken us to this truth. Our own happiness is intrinsically connected to how much and in what ways we inspire happiness in others our own happiness is intrinsically connected to how much and in what ways we inspire happiness and in others. There's something you can do on September 21st. You could just have that as a note to yourself. Today is a day where my own happiness is intrinsically connected to how much I inspire happiness in other people. Chances are, you probably will have a cessation of hostility. And I want to reiterate, this aspect can absolutely be done without having an enlightened mind. So we're going to spend this little last part of my talk discussing wisdom. So the first samadhi is the liberation of mind by emptiness. And you all know I'm a big fan of emptiness, and I always come here and I talk about emptiness, and you're probably all sick of me talking about emptiness. And I promise tonight I won't take the whole time talking about emptiness because I don't need it. Um, In the Pali, it's uh, sunyata is emptiness. So the liberation of mind by emptiness is that which abides in a mind fully realizing that all phenomena are empty of their own defining characteristics. So what that means essentially is, I cannot exist in this moment without all of you existing. I don't exist without all of you existing. This is basically what it means. That's as simple as that. I have no mm-hmm. independent self-existence. I have no solidity as an independent solid self. I don't exist outside of this podium or anything else that happens to be arising in this moment. We are all co-arising. We're all dependent upon everything for our own existence in every single mind moment. It's essentially the way it is. That's emptiness in a nutshell. And the Buddha says, one who contemplates things as not-self acquires the emptiness concentration, or the samadhi of emptiness. So, this is the way I'm going to come at it tonight, because of our day of peace. Not-self is just the realization of the impermanence of everything you think makes up you. Okay, were you, are you the same as you were when you were five? Is there anybody in this room who is the same as they were when they were five? What's the same about you as when you were five? Some of you may have the same name. Same DNA, DNA, right? DNA, although DNA It has a chance, you know, it can shift. There's all kinds of things we can do to our bodies. We can ingest all kinds of things that can actually change our DNA, you know, over time. Certain things get triggered. We have mutations, you know. So, yeah, it's true. We have this same basic thing, but, yeah. It's the identification only that you think makes you the same as you were when you were 5 because you have a history you have this memory you have these concepts you are there's nothing solid about you outside of the memory of your life if you lost the story of your life through amnesia you would you basically would cease to exist as this permanent thing you call you you wouldn't exist your body would still be here but you know, every seven years your body's completely replaced by new cells. So, not even that is the same. The stickiest clatia is the fundamental story, the continual meta narrative in our own minds, which tells us that our own solidity is real. This is a meta narrative that's there all the time, it never goes away. That's why we think we're solid and real. And this meta narrative is hardwired into us by virtue of being born in a human body with a human mind. That's like your ultimate karma, by the way, is being born in this. Except the good news is, this is the vehicle to wake up and to realize your own true nature as empty. Without this, there's no recognizing emptiness directly. So, even though we have this horrible karma that keeps us in ignorance, it's that horrible karma that keeps us in ignorance that is the source of our awakening. Okay? So, that's the first samadhi. The second samadhi is the liberation of mind by signlessness. Signlessness is all over, <laughs> it's all over the texts, this thing called signlessness. It's used in a number of different ways. Yes, it's sign, S-I-G-N, less-ness. No signs. Okay? The Buddha was a semiotician long before there was semiotics. I just love it. And the Pali word for it is animita. Okay? So the liberation of mind by signlessness is that which abides in a mind fully realizing that all phenomena are without characteristic signs, i.e., without concepts. The essential nature of all things is, they're just a bunch of concepts. Even Kant said this. You know, our language structures our reality. Everything is just a bunch of labels. So this is why, you know, the basic, A practice that many people teach people first is just seeing or just hearing, right? You know, and the first thing they do is they're, oh, I'm seeing a, you know, they're looking at it like a tree, oh, I see leaves, I see branches, I see, All right, concepts, labels, signs. No, let yourself just rest in movement, color, shape, form. Just see directly. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is the direct seeing of phenomena without their labels, without their concepts. So this is the liberation of mind by signlessness. Imagine what this could do for the cessation of hostility. Your enemy is not your enemy anymore. See the enemy as they are. Human. Okay, so this just takes you right back into the outer piece in the inner peace, see yourself as you are, without your labels, without your concepts. So, another way this samadhi of signlessness is talked about <coughs> is, and this is from the Chitta Samyutta. Chitta means mind. The Buddha suggests that you have a non-attention to all signs. So, when I say to you, let your mind rest in the flow of phenomena, just open your mind, don't, don't necessarily fixate on anything, right? This is the non attention to all signs, okay? It refers to insight concentration, otherwise known as the vipassana jhanas, for any of you who have ever heard of the vipassana jhanas. And they occur when one has abandoned the sign of permanence. So, what are we doing? we're actually resting in the way things come and go, come and go, the arising and passing away phenomena continually, okay? This is the samadhi of signlessness. And I love this, there's actually 13 kinds of signlessness which I'm not gonna go into, but I just wanna name the first four. The first four, the insight of signlessness removes the signs of permanent, I'm sorry, the first three, permanence, happiness, and self. You are completely letting go of your concepts about what makes you happy because it's all temporal. You know, it's a happiness trap. Oh, I like ice cream today. Tomorrow it makes my stomach sick. Oh, you know, I like this person today. The next day they don't do something. No, that kind of happiness is temporal and it's impermanent. It's not actual happiness, it's not equanimity, it is not. Something that is sustainable and true and real. And the self, well, we've talked about not self, that's emptiness. So the last of the three samadhis is the liberation of the mind by wishlessness. I love this. Wishlessness. Okay? The liberation of mind by wishlessness is that which abides in the mind, fully realizing that all phenomena are not to be mentally elaborated, i.e., not to be fixated on in any way. This is non-attachment. Imagine September 21st, going through your day of peace with the ultimate non-attachment, Not mental, no papancha mind. You are not mentally elaborating on anything. Things happen, people come, they go, you experience them directly. There's no story going on in your mind about what they want, what, what, what could this could be. None of that. Papancha mind is gone, totally gone. You have essentially given up what the Buddha called directed concentration, okay? This is undirected concentration. You're just allowing yourself to be in your experience as it is. In fact, this is actually Dzogchen, just so you know. This is Dzogchen. If you put these three things together, you get Dzogchen and Mahamudra directly from our polytext. So anybody who says that the Theravada doesn't go all the way, doesn't really know what they're talking about because there's or analogous paths, they are exactly the same thing, they go to exactly the same place. Resting in the knowing of co-arising, resting in the conceptlessness of all phenomena, and resting in non-attachment, just letting the world work you, being in it, truly, truly being in the world and letting yourself have desire without all the attachment to the desire. And this all leads to the ultimate peace, which is Buddha nature. So I just wanted to read a quote to you. This is from Anam Thutten. I recently did a retreat with him, which was so beautiful. And he said, nobodiness is your true nature. suchness, the Tathagata, the Buddha nature. But it is not nihilistic. Not self is everything and nothing at all. Ego never dies. It is the attachment to identification with the ego that is transcendent and dies. The true delusion is the identification with ego. And that is what we give up on the day of peace. That's how we get peace. Awaken and return to what is already there in you, pure awareness, and measureless compassion and loving-kindness, which is the spontaneous expression of pure awareness. And that will naturally allow the outer and the inner peace to blossom in you on September 21st. Is there anything anybody wants to say? (laughs) 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 Yes? Yes, I would love to repeat the John Gun quote. D u n n e. He wrote a terrific book on Dharma purity, and he has a new book coming out on effortless mindfulness, which is essentially the dzogchen practice of rigpa. Compassion creates a nirvanic story, unlike karmic habits which create a samsaric story. That one. Compassion creates a nirvanic story, so the story of nirvana, unlike karmic habits, which create a samsaric story, or the story of samsara.